If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with John Adams, the second president of the United States. He'll be answering our call on August 27, 1801, just months after losing the election to Thomas Jefferson, thereby negating the possibility of a second term. I'm sure you'll notice he's still a little sore about that, but hopefully he'll get over it. Becoming president after George Washington was an impossible task. The nation was still young and fragile. Yet many Americans were pressing for war with our earlier ally, the French. Luckily, Adams was masterful at the politics of keeping us out of war and at the same time building our defenses, thereby giving our country time to grow into its trousers. Later in the call, pay special attention to the discussion of Dr. Joseph Warren, a man whom you've probably never heard of, but would have been a founding father had he not died at the Battle of Bunker Hill. At the end of the call, I'll share a thought about Dr. Warren and how this man's life or death could have completely changed the outcome of the American experiment of self-governance. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow historians and dentists everywhere, I give you John Adams. Hello, President Adams. Are you there? I am indeed, sir. Good day. Oh, sir, it is so nice to meet you. My name is Tony Dean, and I am talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it actually allows us to converse as if we were five feet from one another. And it allows me also to share a recording of this conversation with people around the world. And, sir, your contribution to our nation has been extraordinary. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions. But before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Are there any questions that I can ask for you first? Answer for you first. My goodness, sir. I, I can... I could only start and probably not finish in the time we have together to ask questions about what lies in store for the future. My primary concern, having just lost the election of 1800, of course, is what will become of this country under the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. After that, (laughs) I can only imagine, sir, what the future holds for us. Well, I know you just having lost this election in 1800. I will tell you this. I am being more careful than ever during this call with you not to say something to change the direction of the future. Because to be quite honest with you, sir, your contribution and the decisions that you made along the way would lead us to believe that things turned out well. I mean, we have problems like any country does, and everything is never going to be exactly the way it should be. But, sir, things turned out very well. And I think uh, probably happened in exactly the way that they were supposed to. So I I would recommend that you be hopeful, even though you probably still got a little sting in your side from losing this election right now. Do you think that you should have won, by the way? I I do indeed, but but your, uh, your thoughts intrigue me. Are you implying that things will turn out well because there will be no more political parties? 
<laughs> I would assume well, that means no. <laughs> I am definitely not saying that. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because in our time, the political parties appear to be more divided than they have ever been. But I am a, a person that is very interested in history. And what I think a lot of people that they don't understand right now that complain about politics is that politics throughout time were always vicious. Once the parties developed, th there was always that fighting. I mean, when, when Washington was president, maybe you can answer this question for me. When Washington was president, there, was there a huge division between opinions or were people mostly on the same page? Oh, indeed. Um, first of all, your, your response saddens me that we are not rid of party politics. It was my hope when I took office as the second president that there would be a meeting of the minds, be they of Mr. Jefferson's faction or of the Federalists. And it was just not to be, and I will expound on that later, I am sure. Um, party politics still being a difficulty saddens me. Now, there, was, there were rumblings. I guess would be the best way to put it, when President Washington was in office. But they seem to have uh, come to a crescendo when I took office. Even though, even Benjamin Bates of the Aurora, uh, upon my inauguration in March of 1797, had thought that I would be a true Republican as president, he would soon turn on me after uh, events which, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would like to discuss. Please do. Well, upon taking office, and in even the days leading up to my inauguration, I had offered my hand to Thomas Jefferson, who was my vice president. In those days, of course, when one finished second in an election, one was deemed the vice president, as I was for President Washington. I was his vice president, and a loyal one, I might add. Mr. Definitely. Jefferson and I met, and we discussed perhaps an opportunity, because we had been left with difficulties with the French government that could have led to war. Uh, it would eventually be called the quasi-war, or half-war as I called it, because the French government was angry that the Washington administration had signed a treaty with the British government called the Jay Treaty, in honor of John Jay, who negotiated it, they felt this was a breach of the treaty they had signed with us in 1778 to be our ally. Can now, I pause right there? Yes. It, I, 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 I'm so curious about that because it, it's incredible for me to think that during, around this, during this time that we had so much difficulty with the French because when we were needing help in the revolution. I mean, the French sent about as much as we could ask for, if my understanding is correct. And it, it just is. seems like a complete 180 to all of a sudden we get to a point where you know, we're thinking of going to war with the French. Indeed, How do we make such a huge 180? In, uh, we did, well, we did not. We had determined from the very inauguration of President Washington for his first term that we, 
would stay out of European wars. The French went down their road of revolution, and Mrs. Adams and I saw the rumblings of it in the 1780s when we were there because there were so many poor people in France. They rose up and brought down the nobility of France and brought in revolutionary governments. The one that was in place when I was president was a five-man directory with their foreign minister being Monsieur Talleyrand. Now, they took the Jay Treaty as an insult and immediately started to seize our shipping as they were, of course, at war with uh, many European powers. And we were considered, even though we were neutral, since we had signed the Jay Treaty, they considered us an enemy and started to seize our ships. Now, we, I, President Washington had sent Charles Coatsworth Pinckney to negotiate replacing James Monroe, and they would not speak to him, and I sent two other emissaries, John Marshall, who perhaps you have heard of, and eventually Elbridge Gary as well, would both try to treat with the French government. Now, my hope on my inauguration, and perhaps it was a dream, was that Mr. Jefferson would return to France since he had such a good relationship with them. However, Mr. Jefferson had no intention of returning to France. He said, first, because as vice president, he felt obligated to be here, and I could see his point. And second, he had no wish to travel back to Europe. He had decided that he wished to be home, and I suspect, though he uh, always maintained that he did not like to dirty his hands with politics, I would assure you that that was not the case. I think he's yeah, waiting I think, for I, my fall. Do you not think so, it, sir? It, no, I, I, I think that he was definitely playing a, the, the game of politics a little bit quieter than others, but he was playing it. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but was, would, is Jefferson lazy? Interesting, interesting thought. Uh, a very fertile mind, sir, about everything from science to architecture to husbandry to government. I would not say lazy. I would say a man who did not like confrontation, so much so that he would have others, such as James Madison or James Monroe or uh, Albert Gallatin. He would have those men do his dirty work for him. I, in uh -huh. fact, indeed, and at that meeting, I had asked him if he would ask James Madison himself if he would go to France, and clearly they decided that they were not going to go at all, either of them. And in any event, um, the men of my executive branch, the Secretary of, of War, Timothy Pickering, and James McHenry, Secretary of War, and Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott were all high Federalists and would not have approved him anyway. Now, you're going to ask me what high Federalist means, are you not? <laughs> go, please, go. Well, those are the extreme of the Federalist Party, the extreme members of the Federalist Party, and we might as well get this over with now, sir. Uh, they <laughs> take their orders from the Master Puppeteer, the retired 
Secretary of the Treasury in New York. You know his name, do you not? Uh, I'm going to guess it starts with an A. You would be correct. The little man from New York, Alexander Hamilton, who, I will admit, has talents, but uh, I would leave it at that. His character, uh, I do not think very highly of. Would you say he's the highest of the high Federalists then? Most definitely. Uh, you know, I want you to pause for a minute right there, and I don't want to. I want to come back to the quasi wars, uh, what we were talking about. I want to ask you something specifically about Hamilton. There, there was something I know that you and Hamilton definitely did not see eye to eye on many, many things. Even though we both agree that he had talents, there was uh, there was something that this is going to seem like I'm talking about something different, but bear with me. There was something that you had said to Jefferson. It is a quote that, that something that you had recorded after the fact, and it was after you had the Declaration of Independence had been written. And I'm just going to read the quote of what you recorded as saying in some of your writings, because you've written so much. And you said that Jefferson asked uh, you, why will you not write the Declaration? You ought to do it. And you responded, I will not, reasons enough. Jefferson's, then Jefferson said well, what can be your reasons? And you responded, well, first, you are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of business. And second, I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, and you are much otherwise. Now, when you say I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, you know, I think that, assuming that you said this, I think that people would have said the same thing about Alexander Hamilton. And Most. as I look at Alex, yes, I look at Alexander Hamilton's life. I see a lot of you. You guys were both prolific writers. You both worked eighteen hours a day, if that's what was needed. You were both obnoxious. Please don't take that as a, an insult, because I respect you very much. Oh, you were both you. suspected, and you were both unpopular by whoever you didn't agree with. How is it that you and Hamilton weren't best friends? I do not believe him a virtuous man. I believe him very much about power. One only need to see the uh, dispute while I was president over having a standing army with the threat of this war. It, you seem to be very well read in my life, sir. So you obviously know that I have a fondness for the Navy. In fact, I mm -hmm. created a department for it under Benjamin Stoddard and have always firmly believed in a defense of this country by wooden walls, warships, such as the USS Constitution and the USS Constellation and other warships, a large standing army, which I would argue is feared not only in America, but was feared long before that when we were colonies in Great Britain. A fear of a large standing army. What did more to start our war for independence? than having large standing armies in various places such as New York and Boston. It made the war come on much more rapidly. So my fear was this army that originally, imagine, sir, Mr. Dean, mm -hmm. that originally when we were discussing raising an army for the defense of this country against France, which in the end was ridiculous because we would have a better chance of seeing a French army in heaven than we would in the United States. 
but it was thought 25,000 men. Now, my first question would be, where would we get these 25,000 men? And we would never, unless a French army landed, I would find it very difficult that we would have that large of an army in so short a time. And considering the distances of where the French armies would come from, there would be no need for that many. It would eventually be 10,000 men. And of course, as you know, I, the command was given by me to President Washington in retirement to come out and become commander-in-chief once again. But of course, at his age, with his health, he would not be fielding. So the second-in-command would have been General Hamilton. Now, he would have been commanded in the field, and from what I saw during his days as Secretary of the Treasury, a brilliant mind, but an ambitious one. As, as Mrs. Adams has called him, uh, she's compared to him to Cassius, and that young cock sparrow and other such language, with an eye for himself. And such an ambitious man, could he not be another Napoleon Bonaparte, sir? That is my Interesting. Fear. That is the difference between us. Because I have I written see the Constitution for Massachusetts, and he has not. This is not the answer that I expected you to give me, but now that you've said it, it is clear as day. Because if you look at your history, you're definitely a, a person to look at the country first and the, the way and how you can serve first. And Hamilton is like, uh, I mean, he's just, just non-stop movement and progress in some direction. And I think the world needs people like Hamilton, but they need somebody to keep the reins on him so they go the direction where he can be useful to everybody instead of just useful to himself. Is that, does that make sense? It does, because in his days as an officer on the staff, for, well, first as an artillery officer, and then on General Washington's staff, he was kept in control by General Washington. But, but once unleashed, he became very uncontrollable. I will give him great credit, however, having said all of this against him, for being one of those who is very much supportive of the Constitution. While I was in Great Britain as the first minister to the court of St. James, and Mr. Jefferson was in Paris as minister there, uh, Mr. Madison, Mr. Hamilton, and General Washington, soon to be President Washington, were all very much involved in the forming of our government. And in fact, it would be Mr. Madison, Mr. Hamilton, and Mr. Jay who would write the Federalist Papers in defense of this Constitution and getting it ratified. So I will give him credit for that very much. His exploits as Secretary of the Treasury and beyond, including this last election, uh, I do not think so highly of him because of those events. Do you think that, as we've said, I, I know what happens next, and I, I know that you, you don't, but do you think that... You know, as now that you're, you know, no longer the president, 
and certainly you know you, you will have less to uh, hopefully you'll get some some a break and have uh less to do with politics going into the future do you think that time will soften your view on hamilton and and maybe you'll have a different impression impression of him later in life oof i i i do not know he he antagonizes many it would take me a long time sir to get over what happened in this last election you do know that throughout my administration he was feeding advice through letters to the men of of my council my secretaries in the executive branch be it mr pickering or mr mchenry or mr walcott his hand-picked replacement at treasury he was sending them advice as if he were the president and on a number of occasions telling them to ignore my advice and i was supposed to be holding these men in my council for the good of the country yet i found finer counsel from mrs adams than i ever found from any of those gentlemen i do not think so sir in the history of mankind i don't know if there has ever been a human being that was more productive and dangerous with a pen you mean mr hamilton yes yeah. indeed <laughs> yes. I, I how about how yeah. about uh how about jefferson do you think that you and jefferson will be able to see eye to eye at some point uh as of right now again sir the the wounds from the loss of the election are still very sensitive i would hope that in some day in future that we will be able to make amends his criticisms as my vice president of my presidency and his unwillingness to aid in any affair of any kind including the half war with with france have disappointed me greatly his comments about my sanity and my my lack of taste i have heard from from friends um notwithstanding i would hope that at some point as old men perhaps contemplating the past and achievements that we will perhaps by letter return to the days when we were friends i i think it will take some sort of interme- intermediary however to do that but but i am hopeful as i was when i became president time heals all wounds indeed so let's go back to uh calling washington into service this is something that that i i i didn't fully understand and i'm surprised to hear you say this right now so washington steps away from the presidency and we are your and and we're, at this time in 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 history we're thinking that we're going going to go to war from france or go to war with france even though you're saying that there's just no way that that happens in the way that we you know they're going to storm the beaches and you call washington into service that doesn't even seem possible washington what happened when you called washington back into service what what was his reaction his reaction was was favorable and he fully intended to do it but the thorn in the matter of course was that he insisted on alexander hamilton being the second in command and 
His Excellency knew, I knew, and the men of government all knew that he could not possibly field. But as president, were I to offer the command of the army to anyone but President Washington, there would have been an outcry because still, even in his older years, at the end of two terms as president, he still was, and I suspect always will be, the most revered man in the United States. So I, I had no other choice but to offer command to him. Who else, would ra- who, who else could rally so many men to raise regiments to fight France than George Washington? No, there's just nobody like Washington, no question. Do you think, I mean, when, when Washington, when you call him back to service, and his first reaction is, okay, I'm coming back. You know, whatever I need to do to serve, I'll do at whatever level, which is incredible to me. I mean, considering the life that he lived, you just got to at some point say, I, I need a few days off. You know what I mean? I need, I need a, a three-day weekend or, you know, something. Indeed, indeed. And he, his first reaction to you calling him to service is that if Hamilton comes with me. You know, and it makes me wonder if, if Washington and Hamilton, if, if one didn't have the other throughout all of this, that there possibly could have been neither. I mean, maybe these two needed each other. Most definitely. I mean, the world would, would the world have been very different if one of those two wouldn't have existed together? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my apologies, sir, for interrupting, but I'm anxious to answer. Please. Again, despite my anger towards Mr. Hamilton and the fact that he worked behind me and that in 1800 he actually supported Mr. Pinckney to be president as opposed to me among the Federalists and worked against me uh, calling me a failure and wondering about my sanity and I still in remembrance of the war remember how highly then General Washington thought of young, young Hamilton, young, young Colonel Hamilton. His story is, is a magnificent one, despite my distaste for him, that he came from nowhere. Of course, at some point you may ask me for the quote, but since we are, are going to be speaking on gentlemanly terms, I, I will not uh, add that quote uh, of what I really think of him. I will say that for a man who came as far as he did, he is very gifted, very brilliant. And from what I know from those who served in the Army during the war, Mr. Hamilton was brilliant on General Washington's staff. In fact, General Washington could not have been the commander he was without him on his staff. So he was indispensable to him. His handling of the Treasury was credible as well. It did create a, a new economy for us. It was, it has always been his lack of sincerity that is my difficulty with Mr. Hamilton and his, his need for power. Certainly, even though uh, Mr. Hamilton married into the Schuyler family and their powerful New York political base, he would not have risen that far without being on the staff of General Washington. So I, I would agree with you if you were saying that they needed each other. Uh, I would say that it's a very good point. Thank you. 
So you had said, I, I want to go back and talk about some of your moves, uh, I mean, some of your uh, plans with, with the thinking that we're going to be attacked by France or we're going to go to war with France. Before we do that quote, though, in our time, sir, there's nothing that you could say, gentlemen or not gentlemen, to shock anybody in the audience that will be listening to this. So we're all at the edge of our seats wanting to hear this quote about how you felt about Mr. Hamilton. So please tell me that before we go back. Oh, if you insist. He's the bastard brat of a Scottish peddler. <laughs> okay. So let's go back to France. So what was the result of this? How, uh, this how did it end? Well, we shall uh, go back to when I mentioned that I sent um, the emissaries, the uh, Mr. Marshall and, and Mr. Gary, over to join Mr. Pinckney in negotiating with the French government. And, of course, now it has become 1798, and word has come forth that they were unsuccessful in their negotiations. And letters were returned from France, from them, that were sealed. And four of the five were encrypted, so they had to be decoded before we could even know what they said. The first one, of course, declared that uh, it had been a failure. And once all of the information was out in all of the letters, what it came down to was this, that even to speak to Monsieur Talleyrand and the French government they had to pay a bribe. There were intermediaries who came to us in those coded letters as, though they do have names, did have names, agents X, Y, and Z. Hence, it has been called the X, Y, Z affair. And they told Mr. Pinckney, Mr. Marshall, and Mr. Gary that in order for a negotiation to even begin, that we had to pay a bribe first to Monsieur Talleyrand, and then to the French government for the insults on my part. And they absolutely refused. Absolutely refused, and were not allowed to meet with anyone of the French government after that, after being given Incredible. a brief meeting with Monsieur Cl Talleyrand. Clarify your insult. I mean, the bribe is unbelievable, but what was your insult exactly? Uh, to be honest, sir... Uh, my insult was only that, as well as attempting to continue to negotiate, evidently the insult they thought was that we were arming ourselves to defend ourselves. That we were, of course, I had mentioned earlier about having a standing army of 10,000 men, but more importantly, this also irked Mr. Hamilton, was the need for strengthening our defenses along our coastline for powder houses and so that we may have ammunition and cannon foundries and, of course, shipyards to build ships in our defense. They took this as an insult. But, of course, the Jay Treaty, which was even before I was president, infuriated them the most. The fact that in my inauguration that I vowed that we would keep ourselves out of European wars no doubt, infuriated them as well. I see. It was several things. It's considered an insult. So now they come looking for bribes because they're insulted over many different issues. And what was your response to them wanting money? I'm sure you just gave them piles of money, right? 
No, we, we adamantly refused, and we continued fur- furiously in our defense. But I will tell you this, sir. As there was a war furor, well, not with the uh, Mr. Jefferson and the Republicans, they felt it was my fault and that my insults had brought all of this on, much as the French government did. But there was a war fervor in this country, not only by uh, the men of the executive branch, but even Mrs. Adams felt that it was necessary, and many were concerned that I was negotiating when I should be preparing the country for a war footing. But I was determined, sir, to do both. And it was because of my determination that eventually there would be a meeting of the minds. In fact, what would happen was Mr. Pinckney and Mr. Marshall would leave and Monsieur Talleyrand requested that Elbridge Gary, of all gentlemen, stay. This was seen also in America as an insult because they felt that he was pro-French. But what I would come to find out later, after Mr. Gary returned to Boston and we met in Quincy, was that if he did not stay, Monsieur Talleyrand was ready to declare war. So the fact that Mr. Gary stayed, staved off war, in fact, when he returned, he had information that the French government did not want war. And eventually, there would be a peace settlement between Mr. Vance Murray from The Hague, who would be our chief negotiator, and the French government, then no longer the directory. Now we are talking of the government of Napoleon Bonaparte. And a peace treaty would be signed, but unfortunately, it would be in the fall of 1800, and it would be too late to help me win a second term as president. But uh, peace you know, was restored. Do you, do you think that this, this would have made a difference, where you possibly would have won your second term? I do. Because then That's Mr. Hamilton would have no argument as to my competency and my sanity, because I would have negotiated oh, peace with the French government. You know, as I, as I look throughout history, I'm very curious how you feel about this. this. This masterful game that you were playing of politics, playing both sides, preparing for war and at the same time negotiating, and then everything happened behind the scenes, it is the most exquisite game of chess that has ever been played. And then you look at the people of history that were soldiers and people that, you know, were, were loud and, and, and boisterous. And I think sometimes those people get remembered more easily than the intellectuals that play this complicated game of chess that make quite possibly the biggest moves of all in history. They're just, for the masses, I think they're maybe harder to understand and maybe even harder and and certainly not as easy to remember. I mean, it seemed like you were playing that game a lot, you know, the complicated game to get to an end that made sense for everybody. Does any of that make sense? It it does. I, I would like to think that my time in France had much to do with that. Though I have had great fears of the French Revolution and now for Napoleon Bonaparte, um, I have 
great fear of what holds in the future for Europe. And this country, so very new, cannot afford to be involved in a war with either Great Britain or France. That does not mean that we will back down and they might find great difficulties in sending troops here. Though we need to have a position of strength with a strong navy and an army to defend ourselves, we also have to be concerned with the fact that we are still a very new country and we still have a long way to go before we can bring ourselves into some costly war, unless absolutely necessary. Yeah, you know, looking back in history, when the decision was made not to go fight during the French Revolution, uh, uh, you know, looking back, that had to be the right decision. It had to be the right decision to stay out of these wars because our country was so new. I mean, uh, how in the world, as much as there were people that wanted to go fight, how in the world could we uh, have withstood that? with still trying to lay the groundwork for, you know, what our country would look like. Because, you know, I'm guessing, you know, after the Declaration of Independence was written, we were still trying to figure out what laws would be followed, how they would be followed. Everything was probably being negotiated in the courtroom. I mean, if, if we had gone to war, what, what do you think would have happened? Well, in, in my mind, a war with the French would have been mostly naval. I, I, again, I do not think that there would have been a large French army that would have been transported over to America. But I, I think a, a naval war with the French would have been very costly. Yeah. Hmm. What do, what do you, you've mentioned Napoleon Bonaparte a few, a few times. What are your impressions of him? In my mind the comparison of he to Alexander Hamilton is very stunning. I really? see Mr. Hamilton with the same opportunities, doing the same things. He seems to be a very brilliant, brilliant general. He has, of course, thought about invading England. He has, he has gone to Egypt. He's he's very much interested in a larger France than the one that is on the map that we look at today, and that that is a, a frightening thing. Maybe Napoleon Bonaparte needed a Washington too. Indeed, <laughs> they there have been attempts, of course, in the past to invade England that have, uh, well, except going back to William the Conqueror, have failed. Of course. The Spanish made an attempt with the Armada, and uh, I think France would have had great difficulty in, in trying to invade England, but perhaps that is why uh, Mr. Bonaparte changed his affairs and went to Egypt instead. Hmm. You have uh, spent quite a bit of time with both the French and the English. What, why, why is it that they can't get along? I would suspect because they are both empire builders and always have been. And, of course, if, if you have studied the, the wars of Europe going back to antiquity, almost every conflict involving England or, if you will, Great Britain, France, Spain, 
Austria, Prussia, Russia, whenever sides seem to be uh, made, they always seem to be on opposite ones. Perhaps a great deal of it has to do with territory. Uh, religion, I would think, has a lot to do with it. Certainly. Of course, you know, they have, they've been at war for, for centuries. And, of course, a, a lot of it has to do with who is on the throne of each country. And, of course, now there is no throne in, in France as far as the monarchy is concerned. Mm-hmm. It is a game to them. It is, um, you, you mentioned chess earlier. I believe with European governments, a lot of this is chess. Gaining acquisitions. So let's go back to your vice presidency. When Washington was unanimously elected, you became his vice president with the second highest number of votes, from my understanding. And as I, as I have read about your past, I don't know if, if there was anybody that matched your work ethic. Thank you. And, well, and I mean that most sincerely. When you look at the job that you were put into as vice president, it seems like that is the worst job that you could have ever been put into. <laughs> is that the way you felt about it? Yes. Um, could, could you expand on that? Unuseful, worthless um, job title that I, w- I was ever given. I, for a lawyer to sit in the Senate and to not to be involved in debate except to cast a tie-breaking vote. Difficult indeed. And with my personality and my need to be involved and my liking of a good debate, as I did in all those years in Congress, in the courts of Europe, to just sit over a Senate proceeding and merely just cast tie-breaking votes for me was very disappointing. But even more disappointing was the fact that as the second man in the administration, I was consulted not at all. How is that possible? It was just President Washington style. He trusted the men that he had been at war with, uh, men such as Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Knox and others. Um, They, of course, had fought through that that war together as brothers while I was in Congress at the time. So perhaps he did not, was not comfortable with me. So we had consulted before and during the war on many an occasion. When he became president, I think he just became so very dependent on men such as Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Knox. That there was never a question that that man wouldn't stand back-to-back with a gun if needed. Because there, there is no higher level, I'm guessing, of brotherhood than two people willing to sacrifice their life one another. That's difficult to, to duplicate. And that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Because apart from that, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. It is clear that you are knowledgeable. It is clear that you are a brilliant order. I mean... How in the world does he not lean on you all the time to debate the difficult uh, topics of the time? It just it, so that that actually makes a lot of sense. So that term 
lasted eight years for you, correct? You're vice president for two terms. Indeed. So you have to be pulling your hair out for eight years. Is that correct? Well, I was already uh, losing hair far, far before that. But all of that aside, I found it frustrating indeed. Of course, there were... There was the move of the capital from New York to Philadelphia and the agreement that there would be, eventually there would be a capital in what would be um, Washington City. But other than that, and I was, I hate to say, a, a small player in that administration. Uh, far more decisions were made by men such as Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison, who was in Congress. Than, than I made. I, I, there was were very you, little for me to do. Were you afraid of being forgotten during the, those two administrations? Indeed. And, and of course, as, as I have thought deeply on this matter, and perhaps it can be seen as uh, the words of a frustrated old New Englander, um, I have often wrote that I feel like I will be forgotten behind George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. But, well, yes, they're, they're I, I did feel forgotten. I, I felt that yeah. all of my time spent in France and in Great Britain on behalf of this country, though it had gotten me the second number of votes in the vice presidency, had gotten me little else. How yes, important is your legacy to you? Very important. It, it is why I copy my letters, sir. It is why I believe that Saving the letters and not burning them is very important so that others, official letters, of course, uh, may read of the history of the past so that they may use it in their present time and plan for the future. In our time, we are so thankful for the letters that you have written. There is literally, it, it appears from, from our time that if anybody wanted to understand what your thoughts were in relation to the country, your wife, the future, the past, uh, you, sir, you've written it all down, and we, we thank you to continue doing that because uh, as historians look back, uh, you'll be glad to hear this, as historians look back at your life and your presidency, it is, uh, it, even though it may not appear that way right now, it is very favorable. Indeed. Uh, even even uh, my private letters with Mrs. Adams? <laughs> well, I'm not you'll, sure Mrs. I mean, Adams, I'm not sure Mrs. We'll Adams would be pleased with that, sir. I won't, I won't go to, uh, into too much detail about that, but I'll just say this. It won't matter when you're long and gone. So and you true. do more good than bad. We'll just say that. Oh, good. But, so Very good when you talk When you talk about legacy... The importance of you leaving this legacy behind, and you talk about Alexander Hamilton, you know, looking for power, is be, uh, the importance of needing to leave some sort of legacy behind and for your deeds to have mattered to the future, is this not similar in some way also, you know, a desire to strive for power, is that a stretch for me to say that? That your life has to matter more than it matters right now? Is that a different well, kind of power? It is, because because the I, I would not call it power, but I would say it would be striving to excel 
in the name of virtue, because without virtue it means nothing. When one does great things, one can either do great things for oneself or for posterity. It is my belief that through my time as a lawyer, defending the soldiers in, in 1770 at the Boston Massacre trials, stepping forward and bringing the Congress to a point of declaring independence, negotiating with the French government, with the Dutch government for loans, and eventually a peace treaty with Great Britain, writing a constitution for Massachusetts, and serving in government. These are all, I suppose you could say, powerful things, great things, but it is why one does these things that is important, and I'm not doing these uh, granted, a legacy is, is a good thing, but my legacy should be for the country, the country first. Because doing these things without virtue means to me that they are not worth doing at all. That makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's talk about Benjamin Franklin, Dr. Franklin. Uh, indeed. Your, <laughs> your relationship with him is complicated. It, it, it appears. It certainly appears that you respect Dr. Franklin. I do. What uh, could you could you speak on him a little bit? I mean, you spent some time with him as a diplomat in was it in France? Yes. Yes, indeed. Could you um, tell me a little about Dr. Franklin? Maybe about that time. Well, of course, there is the wise old sage Dr. Franklin that everyone in this country knows and loves, as they should. And it was that Dr. Franklin that I was able to work with in Congress, uh, especially on the committee to draft the Declaration of Independence. I would never take away from the good work that he's done, especially in those days. Though I would have liked him to speak up more in Congress as I was defending that document, and even before that when I was defending the thought of independence and the fact that we must get away from the middle way and that we need to prepare ourselves for war, even before independence. Um, I found that Dr. Franklin spoke not at all in Congress, but I'm sure much of what he did was outside of the walls of Congress. So perhaps he was able to accomplish the same things outside of Congress that I did within but he was, of course, on the committee, along with myself, aiding Mr. Jefferson by editing his Declaration of Independence. And, of course, we, we voted for it as well. The Dr. Franklin that I came to know in France was a bit different than the one that I remember from Philadelphia. Though, I must tell you, regardless of my distaste for his behavior... Uh, at the, in the salons of France, and the fact that I, I found that he seemed to enjoy himself a bit more than, than I thought prudent, that he knew, did not know nearly as much French as he let on. In fact, I believe I learned more on the ship, the Boston, sailing over to France than he did. And that being said, living with him, when we first arrived was also not a good idea in Pessy. The French people loved him, regardless of what I thought. 
his likeness was everywhere. It was on bowls, it was on plates, it was on medallions, it was everywhere. The French people loved Dr. Franklin. And I, I found his ways of trying to accomplish things for the French government too passive, sir. Far too passive. He seemed to be very calm and quiet and at peace as he sipped a glass of champagne in some salon somewhere when I believed that things had to be done. Comte de Vergen, the foreign secretary, needed to be spoken to. We had to speak to other members of the French government. We had to accomplish what needed to be accomplished with the new alliance. But As don't you think... Military stores, and eventually... More, most importantly to me, even more important than French troops, was the use of the French Navy. He just seemed too passive for me. You know, I know you love a good debate, and I do too, but don't you think that when you refer to Franklin as the sage in Congress, that when Franklin goes over to France, before you get there, to hopefully negotiate assistance that we need desperately, wouldn't you almost look at that and see Franklin transforming from the sage to the chameleon? Because if you had gone over first and negotiated that, would you have had the same outcome that he had? They probably would have found me, as they did when I was there, difficult to work with at first. The first time, not the second time. If they wanted this alliance, then they had to keep up their end of the bargain, was my belief. And, you know, in retirement, looking back, I would have to say that Dr. Franklin was the right man for that negotiation, because perhaps it took someone such as himself, so worldly famous and so beloved, to bring about that alliance as opposed to myself. I probably would have ruffled some feathers as I did, even though the alliance was already settled by the time I even set foot in France. So, yes, I, I think in looking back, I, I, I think Dr. Franklin was the right man for that time. Do you think Dr. For Franklin, when I call him the chameleon, because the way that you describe it, to Dr. Franklin's, I just don't believe that intelligent people, people like you, I don't think that you just make this up as you go. You go into a situation knowing what your goal is, having some sort of idea what you're trying to accomplish. And I just think that, it, from what you're describing, that maybe his approach to dealing with the French was completely designed to appeal to their nature, that had that not happened, you know, things would have been very different. Most certainly. Most certainly. And I see that so now. You're, and I, I have to admit that a good deal of my agitation was setting sail on the Boston, leaving my family and my country in February, and then arriving sometime later, and finding out while dining on a French Navy vessel that the alliance had already been settled before I'd even set foot on French soil. Oh, my gosh. 
That was, that was that very that irritating. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking how I would react, and I would be furious with that situation. How, how long did that did the did it take to travel by sea between the two places? Well, it 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 varied. It, a lot of it depended on Dr. Franklin's Gulf Stream and going what time of year and in which direction one was going from America to Europe or Europe to America. It could be a month. It could be two months. We, we left in February and we arrived in March. So it, it, it took a good deal of time, but um, there were some storms aboard. There were some excitement with British vessels, including the capturing of a merchant man. Um, it was the first time I had ever traveled by sea, so along with John Quincy. And that was your first time, really? It would be stormy. It was indeed. And there would be more to come after that, as you know. Yeah. Being on, being on a ship like that for a month had to feel like very similar to being vice president. <laughs> no way indeed. for you to do anything. <laughs> well, I, you, you may not find this surprising, sir, but I, as being on the uh, Congress's Board of War and Ordinance, I did get along with Captain Tucker, but I did view it as an opportunity, being on the Board of War and Ordinance and being very much a man in favor of a strong Navy, my opportunity to investigate how our Navy was doing. I, I found that there was a great deal of uncleanliness, that the language was, was dreadful, and that there needed to be more discipline on board ship. And I made all of those recommendations to Captain Tucker, who took them in good spirit, and improvements were made. And, and the, the humorous thing is when Mrs. Adams crossed on her, on her ship in 1784 to join me in Europe, she did very much the same thing with that captain. No, less about discipline in the crew and more about the cleanliness of the ship and the quality of the food. And between the two Adamses, um, we made our attempt to uh, make the Navy cleaner and more disciplined. You're halfway through the conversation with John Adams. It's fascinating to imagine Adams working side by side with Ben Franklin in the Continental Congress seeing Franklin as the sage, then later meeting with him in France and completely being unable to work with Dr. Franklin as he was charming the French. Adams must have been pulling his hair out, well, at least the, the ones on the sides. If you're ready to hear more from John Adams, he's just about to share some interesting thoughts about his wife, Abigail, in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.